Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. If you ran the New York City Marathon between 1979 and, say, the early 2000s, you may have found yourself in the presence of something pretty special. It was like a big attraction for everybody to come and see the world's longest urinal. Wait, so when you say it was an attraction, like, what, what do you mean by that? Tourists would want to come and see where this urinal was and take pictures of it. So it was like taking a picture of the Statue of Liberty. You know, it's like, oh, wow, we're going to the marathon. We got to see the urinal. It was a big attraction. It really was. You heard that right. A urinal. A really, really long one. At the height of its glory, it was an astonishing 350 feet. Tourists could spot it in the wild at Fort Wadsworth on Staten Island in the days leading up to the marathon. And the morning of, while runners were milling around before the race start, enjoying complimentary coffee and hot chocolate, they, or the men rather, had the option of relieving themselves in a massive open-air PVC trough. Women benefited too. Shorter porta potty lines. A win for a scrappy race on the rise. This surprisingly long urine catcher, it was more than just a fascinating place to take pictures. This week on Human Race, the story of the world's longest urinal. It's one of DIY problem-solving, triumph, and liquid tragedy. And behind this urinal, an unknown legend named Vic Navarra. Vic was a fixture at the New York City Marathon for 25 years. He was a New York City firefighter who conducted the race start from the top of a fire truck's 85-foot ladder. When tens of thousands of runners poured onto multiple levels of the Verrazano Bridge at the start of the marathon. Vic was the one conducting them. When he was back on the ground, he was also the steward of this storied urinal. Together, their history gives us a glimpse into how the New York City Marathon scaled up to be the race that it is today. But before word of this 350-foot landmark caught on, and before Vic became the race's official start coordinator... The urinal was just a humble wooden trough. It was initially designed by Logan Hurst, an engineer. Logan was a friend of the New York City Marathon's technical director at the time, Alan Steinfeld. The goal? To reduce the number of porta-potties. The trough was a screwed-together V-shaped chute with wooden legs, graded slightly so that the urine would flow down to one end. A hose at the top end of the urinal flushed down the liquid deposits. And at the bottom, a sewer drain to catch the contents. Basically, what it was was a giant pee water slide. Vic Navarra took over care of the urinal when he began managing the marathon start in 1982. Vic has since passed away, but I talked to his wife Joanne and his daughter April about the urinal. Here's Joanne. 
they would get clear plastic and they would put comics underneath the plastic. So that when the guys went up to the urinal, they had something to read. Now, this is different from pinning an article above a urinal. The newspaper comics actually lined the inside of the urinal. Vic's daughter April remembers that one year they tried a variation on the theme. They got some men's magazines and laid them out. Now, this silly little addition, it transforms the urinal from a tool, something you could use after two glasses of water and a cup of coffee, into an experience. Now, I don't have much first-hand knowledge of urinals, but I would imagine that walking up to the world's longest urinal and seeing it lined with comics would be like, I don't know, entering a DMV and finding a mariachi band. It doesn't fundamentally change the task, but the gesture might lighten the experience. Year after year, runners lined up at the urinal for relief. In a book about the New York City Marathon, Vic says in reference to it, it's seasoned like a good frying pan. Such a vivid image. And like cooking, what happened at the urinal was out in the open. Sure, it was loosely backed up to a line of bushes and trees, but there was no other cover and certainly no mistaking what was going on. Here's Joanne again. It was hard to put together because you had to make sure all the pieces joined so that you didn't have any leaks. And afterwards, they, you know, they, well, they have to sanitize everything because nobody was going to touch it. Everybody had to use gloves and stuff. They take it down, then they have to take it apart. Because this whole wooden contraption was repeatedly screwed together and then disassembled, they'd sometimes have to replace worn-down sections. And over time, they added a few more. And then one year, we were just saying, the thing is falling apart. And that's when my husband and my daughter, April, had this great idea. Let's make a bigger one. Here's April, Vic's daughter. Dad and I were sitting around up at the lake house and said, gosh, you know, he says, we got to come up with a with something simpler. We need something that's that's going to be easy, that we could put together faster. It's going to require less labor, and it's going to be more durable. April was home from college for winter break. This was around 1989 or 1990. The Navarros live on Staten Island, but over the break, they were at their house near the Poconos in Pennsylvania. That house is one that Vic and his family built by hand. So the two of us started brainstorming and... and, and came up with the idea of if we took giant PVC pipe, and it was probably like 18-inch pipe, and cut it lengthwise in half, so you had like an open, an open trough. And then they went and they saw, saw Fred. That's Fred LeBeau, the New York City Marathon race director. The previous wooden urinal was over 200 feet long. The new PVC one would be 350, and even longer world's longest. Fred was like, I love the idea. I love it. The world's longest urinal, version two, was born. The thing made it into newspapers and magazines. Some thought it was gross. Others thought it was novel and amusing. The urinal's most appealing feature, though, at least to the people who put it in races, it was a problem solver. And in 1996, Dave McGillivray, the technical director of the Boston Marathon at that point, he had a massive problem that needed to be solved. The problem was there's no space really here to put portajons, right? In March, I met Dave in Hopkinton. When did you come up? Yesterday. A town west of Boston where the Boston Marathon starts. Now, where do you live? Uh, New York. He drives me around town, and he gives me a tour of how tricky providing adequate bathroom facilities can be. So they would have to 
do their last piece of business up there, and then they'd come down here, and then they'd wait in line for the gun to fire. But as you're waiting, you got to go to the bathroom again. So what they would do is jump over the barricades and go behind Mrs. Brown's house. There was one year where it was just just a lot of it and a lot of complaints. You know, we, we call it urine gate. We're on our way to the location of the Boston Marathon starting village. This is where runners mill around before making their way to the starting line. Now, in 1995, there was no starting village. There were 9,416 people that entered the marathon that year. 1996, however, totally different story. That year, there was a much, much more difficult bathroom problem on the horizon. The race's 100th anniversary is four and a half months away. He spent years planning for it. Dave brought on Vic from the New York City Marathon to help with the race preparations. But suddenly, a significant variable in the equation shifts. Initially, they were planning for a big swell in entrance, so that would be probably like 25,000 people, more than double the year before. And then all of a sudden, the hundredth came and it just went off the charts. What they got was closer to 40,000 people registered. And we needed to do something really quick. Even if there were um, enough Porter Johns in, in, in the state of Massachusetts to bring here to set them up, there's not enough space for that. So that's when I started thinking, we're going to have to do something outside the box. So, um, so a few months before the race, Dave admits he needs help. He calls in a 350-foot favor. And I'll never forget, I think it was Christmas Eve or the day after Christmas, we get a phone call, and it was from Dave. This is Joanne again, Vic's wife. And he said to Vic, um, remember that 20000 I told you about? And he said, yeah. He said, let's nix it. He goes, oh, okay, you're not going to do it? He goes, no. They had to prepare for an even larger crowd of well-hydrated people. Estimates out the window... Vic agrees to help in one very important way. In addition to taking charge of the Boston Marathon's first ever starting village, he also agreed to solve Dave's porta potty problem with the world's longest urinal, or most of it. That PVC trough, a New York institution, it was going on a field trip. Now, although Vic agreed to bring the urinal to Boston's 100th anniversary race, he wouldn't bring all of it. Vic's not going to let Dave and the Boston Marathon steal the title of having the world's longest urinal from New York. He's generous, but not that generous. There might have been a slight competition between the two races. So Dave hatches a plan. So I was going to go out and get two more sleeves. Sleeves meaning sections of the urinal. And, and without him knowing it, add that to the unit, and then, and then after the fact, say, well, we just beat you because now we're 360 feet, but... Good news for Vic and the New York City Marathon. Dave never did secure those extra urinal sections. <clears throat> so here we are right now at... This is the middle school, and the high school's right on the other side, and here's the quote-unquote athlete's village. So the athletes' village is on a field. It's it's so it's yeah. It's the high school and middle school athletic fields. So when we visited, the field was just a field, lined on one short side with trees, and on the long side with a chain link fence. Perfect. So today is kind of foggy, and it yeah. rained last night. And I was wondering, were these kind of the conditions back then? 
No. Well, the 100th, what happened was the day before Sunday, it was awful. The marathon takes place on a Monday. An awful day. Rain. It was probably like this, but raining. And then the day after the marathon, it was the same thing, pouring rain. We're not just talking about the weather to talk about the weather. We're talking about the weather because the conditions, they add an extra layer of complication to planning for and deploying that beast of a urinal. Dave's job in planning for the urinal was figuring out the size of the tank. Remember, in New York, the runoff goes straight into the sewer. But in Boston, Dave had to collect the contents and figure out how much storage he needed. So I was just kind of testing out. I'd run into the bathroom myself and (laughs) pee and say, okay, that's so much. And if I had to do that two or three times before I left, you had to just kind of improvise and... You went into the bathroom and peed in, like, a mason jar. I did. And, I, again, I just wanted to get a sense for myself what, you know, I mean, how do you know when you pee in the toilet, you don't know how much you're doing. So I said, well, if I pee in a cup or whatever, then, okay, now I get it. Then I thought, you know, all that's going to go out the window because if it rains out, then all the rainwater is going to collect in the urinal because it's not covered. So I'm, I'm doomed anyway. So I just said, you know, we'll, we'll get a couple of tanks and we'll hope for the best. No way did I have enough space in those tanks. I knew that. But Dave, being a good race organizer, he had a contingency plan. I said to Vic, if the tanks fill, then I think what we're going to have to do is shut down the urinal and have have people just wait in in line for the Portageons. As reliable as the urinal was, rain wasn't the only thing capable of disturbing its flow. The big problem was, um, like I said, the day before was a really bad, rainy day. So when Vic assembles the urinal, he puts the sleeves together and then he would duct tape the sleeves, you know, where potentially it could leak out. And so that day, Sunday, he radioed me down. I was down at the start and he said, ah, we can't duct tape the sleeves today because of the rain. We'll do it first thing in the morning. And I said, OK, fine, not a problem. The good news No rain on Marathon Monday. That means the tank was only responsible for holding pee and the water from the hose that washed it down. Crisis averted, right? Well, not quite. Turns out, even though it wasn't raining, the weather still doomed the urinal. A couple days later, I said, I called him and I said, oh, by the way, how did the urinal all work out? He goes, oh, uh... He says, I gotta, I gotta come clean with you. And I say, what, what, what's wrong? He says, I went to duct tape it, but there was so much frost and dew because the morning was so cold and chilly, we couldn't duct tape it. The duct tape wouldn't stick to the PVC pipe. The sleeves were screwed together, but not water sealed. And I said, so what happened? He says, we didn't collect anything. I said, you're kidding. I said, so it all went on the ground? He said, yes. A few days later, Dave and his team go to remove the meticulously measured tanks. When we took the tanks out of here, a few days later, they were bone dry. The funny thing is, is actually this grass, the stretch right yeah. here of the fence, it's like the most dead grass yeah. of yeah. the whole field. It's probably, it's probably the most dead because of, you know, whatever number of years, you know, 20 years ago. You know, in fact, this is the 20th anniversary of Vic's involvement with the, uh, with the race. So it's, uh, it's fitting that, you know, that we remember Vic and remember his um, his involvement in the race and how much and it was I, I, I'm telling you if it wasn't for him I'm not sure what I would have done he, he really saved the day 
saved the day because of Vic's larger impact on the race. It really had very little to do with the urinal. Among his many other race start achievements, Vic is the man who brought the athlete's village to Boston. And that village, it still continues as an important part of the Boston Marathon today. Vic had a motto for race organizing. Semper Gumby. Always flexible. That means, in the scheme of things, this urinal mishap, it's a funny story. For Vic, it's a small hiccup in the middle of years and years of successful service to New York and the larger race community. Something is always going to go wrong. And you adapt the best you can. And if you still fail, you do better next time. After Boston, the urinal had a few more good years of serving New York City marathon runners. But its time in the spotlight was fading. Either its image or utility couldn't keep pace with the prestigious race the New York City Marathon had become. Sometime in the early 2000s, the PVC trough was quietly retired. Race organizers can't quite remember the date. Its disassembled pieces were put into a storage facility on Staten Island, and when the race dismantled the warehouse, the urinal went to a scrapyard. An army of new porta potties took its place. And it's there in New York, its rightful place that will leave the world's longest urinal. Because now, we're going to focus on the man behind its PVC construction. Vic's own extraordinary story? That's after the break. Are you listening to the Runner's World show yet? If you're not already, you should be. In the episode that airs this week, this Thursday, episode 10... Two Runner's World staff members take the Air Force fitness test, the official one. Here's a sneak peek. Do you feel like you have any idea about how you're going to do right now? Boy. Um, I am very nervous. I'm not so good at uh, push-ups or sit-ups. I pretty much stick to running. I think I could probably bang out 30 push-ups, sit-ups. Jeez, I hope I can hit the sit-ups. I, I feel like that shouldn't be that hard. I am totally out of my element here. And uh, there's a room full of people that are all looking at me and are going to laugh at me very soon. <laughs> I might regret this in a few minutes. <laughs> to find out how they fared, subscribe. You get new, great episodes every Thursday. Interviews, service, news of the week. It's really great. Now back to Human Race. Vic Navarro was a kid who picked up running early. He ran in high school and became an active member of the Staten Island Athletic Club. He married his high school sweetheart, Joanne, and they had two daughters. Meanwhile, he became an electrician and then a New York City firefighter. In 1976, when the New York City Marathon becomes a race that covers all of New York's five boroughs, Vic decides he's going to run it. Here's Joanne. I never trained for it. So he went down, he ran the marathon. That night he came back, he goes, it was great, it was great. We got to do this next year. And I looked at him, I said, we got a what? He goes, oh, no, no, we're going to go down, we're going to work. I told him we'll be there to volunteer. And true to his word. The following year, him and I went down and we worked the marathon. And then in 81, I think we both ran it together. And after the following year, we were going to run again, and he got hurt um, at a fire. Vic was a New York City firefighter. His job was search and rescue. Or rather, 
He was the one going into burning buildings. And he couldn't run. And at the same time, uh, Alan Seinfeld and uh, Fred LeBeau... Of the New York City Marathon. ...had asked him, would we consider doing the start? And he said, oh, yeah, sure, okay. What he had just happily agreed to? Essentially adding a second career on top of his first one. And then he roped in everyone else he knew, including his own family. I was seven when we started working on races, and ten when I started on the marathon. In fact, the first time I volunteered on the marathon, it was my birthday. It was October 25th, 1980, and at three o'clock in the morning, my dog had six puppies. (laughs) And because we were so busy with the marathon, my aunt stayed up all night with the dog. Like, happy birthday, here's some puppies, you have to go work. (laughs) Yeah, it was crazy. That's Fick's daughter, April. You know, at a very young age, you learned to answer the phone properly because it was often a business call or it was something important. And, and, you know, I had to sound older and mature so that people would take me seriously and actually give me a message to pass on so that we could act on it properly. Joanne, Vic's wife, handled volunteers. His daughters stocked the porta potties with toilet paper and tampons. For the Staten Island crew, the New York City Marathon was a family affair. But it didn't stop at family. When he'd meet new people, he'd always ask, what are you doing the first weekend of November? Because that's marathon weekend. The man made his passions clear. He wore head-to-toe race gear, save for a New York Fire Department baseball cap. That plus a warm smile and an easy way with people. Who could possibly resist? I think I think what Vic had was the the ability to have uh, people gravitate towards him. This is Peter Chacha, the current New York City Marathon race director. He was a he was a uh, had a great personality. He got along with everybody, um, and you know he was a former fire, fireman. You know he was a lieutenant in the fire department. So there was the sense of getting things done in a, a sort of a strategic and orderly way as as um, that department normally does, but. Um, He had a way about him that uh, people just loved to be around. Vic's friends became volunteers. His neighbors became volunteers. By the time Vic turned 50 in 2002, every single person in attendance at his surprise birthday party was a New York City Marathon volunteer. Vic's capacity for building relationships, it made him someone that people wanted to work with, which made him more effective at his job. Two examples come to mind. So the New York City Marathon starts at Fort Wadsworth, a military installation. Early on in Vic's involvement at the race start, he used to have to clip a chain-link fence and peel it back to let the runners through. Year after year, this small yet annoying chore. And once the runners were through the gate, they trampled on the grass. When the race was over, they'd have to mend the fence. Finally, he realized... We can't be rolling back fences anymore. So with this... Um, he said, hmm, we, we were very, very involved with the people down at the base. He said, uh, you know, it would be really great if we had a paved area that they could walk out. And the, the commander of the base said, I know nothing unless I wake up tomorrow morning and it's there. So in the darkness of night, we got everything paved <laughs> and gates put in. Win for the marathon. And even after this clandestine act, Vic remained on good terms with his contacts from the fort. 
Vic's first love was the New York City Marathon, but over time his talents became known. He started to work on races all over the world. New races required building new relationships, and fast. Here's another example from Dave McGillivray, and it's from Vic's time helping out with the Boston Marathon. He was so witty. And, you know, the Hopkinton Marathon Committee is made up of a bunch of very sincere, friendly, devoted individuals, for sure. But it's a small town, and you can imagine the different types of characters, right? Hopkinton, as you'll remember, is where the Boston Marathon starts. And there was one woman, uh, just remain nameless, who, um, you know, worked the marathon, but she used to sit in the back of the, uh, of the meeting room and uh, crochet. So the meeting's going on, and Vic's talking, or I'm talking, you look back, and here she is, you know, making an afghan or something, right? And then, and then every once in a while, there would be stuff where we would not argue with people in the room, but just debate whether we should do this or do that. So Vic would get a kick out of that, because she was back there stitching, and everyone in the meeting was bitching. So we called, hey, you going to the stitch and bitch meeting tomorrow? You know, it's like, but it just shows his level of wit. Although he took his work serious in the sense of he wanted it to be perfect and he wanted it to be right, um, he didn't take life so seriously. I think what Dave means here is that even though Vic was constantly curious, engaged, and searching for how he could make the New York City race start better, and his work in general better, this quest was a joyful one. The wheels are always turning about an event even on vacation. This one year, Vic was on a cruise with his family in the Caribbean. You know, in theory, relaxing and taking time off. So next thing I know, he's talking to all these people on the cruise ship and they're showing him stuff. Vic wants to know. How do you make this much coffee for all these people? See, Fred LeBeau, the New York City Marathon's race director, he had this pet peeve. The morning of the marathon, he always wanted to know. Is the hot chocolate hot? Because that's all he worried about was the hot chocolate had to be hot for the runners. Making the hot chocolate hot and coffee hot meant brewing coffee starting at 2 a.m. and putting it into canisters. It was a pain and definitely not foolproof. So Vic's on this cruise and he grills the staff about the ability to provide perfectly hot coffee for hundreds of people. Turns out they do it with syrup, a sort of concentrated coffee. No long brewing process necessary. So he comes home armed with this information. And the next year, with a new local vendor, upgraded equipment, and that special syrup, he delivers Fred piping hot coffee. Or there was this one time. He's talking to a friend who works at UPS. And then all of a sudden, one of my husband's there talking. He goes, wait a minute. You work for UPS? He says, yeah. He goes, well, who moves packages? UPS. Well, why don't we have them move the, you know, the baggage instead of these baggage buses? It makes a lot of sense. They could put a lot more bags on a truck. And then he gave him a name of a guy, and he made the connection. And then he went to Fred and Al and said, what do you think about that? And Fred said, do you think you can get it? And he said, sure I can, Fred. That enthusiasm is a Vic staple. He didn't know if he could, but he figured out what the heck. He got it. So, I mean, since then, UPS is still involved. More volunteers, a better baggage truck, hotter coffee. These all seem like little things. And on their own, sure, they're incremental improvements to a world-class marathon. 
But let's take a step back for a minute. When we first started in 77, we worked out of the gym. I mean, that's how small it was. I mean, you had a few buses for the baggage buses. And they worked out of the gym for quite a while until it really got really big. And finally, I remember Vic talking to a friend and said, Fred, we can't do this anymore. We don't have enough room. And then we started with the tents and the trailers, and it just kept growing and growing. When he officially started working the start in 1982, the field was around 14,000 people. And then he did the job for 25 consecutive marathons. So to those incremental changes, add setting up a starting village, barcodes on volunteer registration, adapting the start so that TV crews could get better access. Vic, this largely unknown guy, helped the race come into its own over a quarter of a century. His enthusiasm for the race kept pace with the exploding enthusiasm in the race community. And Vic watched the New York City Marathon become the world's largest from 85 feet up in the air, on top of a ladder extending from a fire truck. Again, his two passions brought together. In fact, he didn't just watch, he conducted the race start. For its synchronization and timing, Peter Chacha thinks of it like choreographing a massive ballet. Over the years, Vic ushered 20,000, 30,000, 35,000 runners into his city. He did it every year, until he couldn't. In 1997, Vic retired from the fire department. And with his newfound freedom, he picked up race start coordination full time. And he traveled all over the world to work events, all the while spreading the knowledge he gained in New York. In 2001, New York and the fire department needed him back. Or rather, in classic Vic fashion, he rushed in to help. The terrorist attack on the World Trade Center killed five members of Ladder 35, Vic's old company. Vic jumped in to help the fire department, and he poured his efforts into ground zero rescue and recovery. And he stayed, and he he worked there for months. So basically, in 2001, I pretty much ran the whole marathon, because he wasn't even home. He'd come home maybe for a couple hours to get clean clothes, but he wouldn't even let me wash the clothes at home. They were washing them in the firehouse. And, you know, the marathon went on. You know, we kind of worked hand in hand, I worked from here, and he worked from Manhattan. So if there was anything that had to be done at Roadrunners, he'd take an hour off and run over and do something, you know, back and forth. Vic spent much of the coming months at the disaster site. The felled buildings produced an enormous amount of debris. Vic worked amid dust, smoke, and toxic substances that people should not inhale. But Vic's mission, to help in any way he could, that meant showing up. My brother is, you know, he just, I guess, when 9-11 hit, I remember one time he said to my husband, so he happened to come home one night just to get pick up more clothing, and my brother happened to be here, and he said, so how many people did you know? Like, as if it was like, well, you know, five people. He goes, he just looked at him and said, are you kidding me? It was like he was so involved in the fire department. He knew, you know, almost all of them. The New York City Marathon is in November. And Joanne remembers working the start with sharpshooters on the bridge, stationed over their heads. Vic was at the top of the ladder, looking over his runners and his city, as usual. In the years following the tragedy, 
another wave of misfortunes started to appear. First responders were diagnosed with chronic respiratory problems and cancer. Four years after his work at Ground Zero, Vic became one of them. In 2005, Vic was diagnosed with sinus cancer. Vic had multiple surgeries to try to remove the tumors growing in his face, but they were unsuccessful. By 2006, he lost his sight, but not his love or dedication to his community or the New York City Marathon. That year, Joanne remembers she and Vic giving a tour of the New York City Marathon starting area. And we had to show him different things in the fort. And at that point, he was still blind, but nobody knew it. And he just stood right next to me, and we walked. And he was able to say, okay, over here is Charity Village. This is what, and they were like, they didn't even know that he was blind. But he, that's how well he knew the fort, like the back of his hand. Even as his health declined, he continued to take conference calls, and he did whatever he could to help out with the race. In 2007, though, Joanne took Vic's place on that 85-foot ladder. But as sick as he was, and without sight, there was still no way Vic was going to miss the race. Here's Dave McGillivray. Yeah, it was really, uh, it was painful. Um, I remember going to the race and um, went to see Vic, and he was in one of the recreational vehicles, you know, and he, you know, he still, even though we knew inevitably what was happening, um, you know, he still had a great attitude. He was funny. You know, he accepted his fate. Um, but he, he also, he was proud to know that um, that it was in the hands of his, not just other workers, but his own family, that his wife was going to be up in the bucket truck this time where he always was. I mean, that was his perch. Even in the most tragic of circumstances, Vic was prepared. When he died two months later, newspapers reported he had planned his own funeral. Somewhere around 500 people attended. Guests included people from London, Dave McGillivray from Boston, even the neighborhood FedEx guy. They were there for Vic Navarra, his love for the race, and his love for New York. This episode was produced by me, Rachel Swaby, with Mervyn Deganos. We were edited by Audrey Quinn with help from Christine Fennessy and Sylvia Ryerson. Fact-checking help this week by Jan McLeod. Our theme music is by Danny Koch. David Willey is the editor-in-chief of Runner's Worlds and the editor-in-chief of this podcast. See you next week. <laughs>